Thank you, Isaac. And I want to invite you to continue to tune your hearts and minds, ready your hearts, affections, and your minds, attention, as we turn to God's Word. I've always been fascinated about reconstruction, but particularly reconstruction that comes after a massive conflict, a war. What happens when a country that has been fighting for survival has experienced so much damage, devastation, ruin, and setback, what happens? The war's finally over, uh, the victory's been announced, the parades have all filed past the streets, so now what? I'm reminded of World War II. Now, after the war and the parades were all over, now came the difficult tasks of rooting out all those little pockets of resistance from all around the Pacific Ocean after Japan had finally surrendered. Or what about in Eastern Europe? Now the task of rebuilding Eastern Europe now that all Nazi Germany has been beaten back into surrender. What had been required to use and employ tanks and battleships and fighter jets was now going to require bulldozers and cranes and farm tractors and engineers and architects. And sometimes in our lives, communally, in church, in family, in individual life and experience, that's what happens with us. Maybe you've actually had the need or the opportunity to be a part of a rebuilding project after a hurricane or a tornado went through a community. I can remember being down in Houston and every now and then we'd get a really nasty hurricane that would come through and just tear the roofs off of all the buildings and knock walls down and how the community kind of had to come together. I remember Hurricane Ike very, very vividly. Or maybe you've had a tornado, not an actual one, but perhaps a relational one or a financial one or a health-related tornado in your family or in your marriage. Well, just like the armies of the Allies finally won the war in World War II and provided the opportunity for others to come in and reclaim and reconstruct. So that really closely resembles greatly our lives and our experiences as believers. The war is over. We were at enmity with God. Peter says in the book of Acts, we were by nature God-haters. And so he goes to war with us, and he wins, and we win. <laughs> These enemies of God are transformed into firstborn males of his household and given life and love and dignity and nobility and purpose. That's what happens to us. We go to work. And so it's actually setting us up for our big idea for the morning. And it goes like this, God has done it, go do it. It's one of the great grand tensions of our Bible. God is sovereign, and as humans, we are responsible. And God's sovereignty in no way diminishes our responsibility. Our responsibility in no way diminishes God's sovereignty. How do we reconcile all of that? Well, for that, we have to go to the book of Joshua. We started the book of Joshua way back in the, in the fall semester in uh, September, and we've been walking through it for these many, many months. The theme of Joshua is right there in the name, Yeshua, God is our salvation. That's our series theme. It's right there in his name, God saves or God is our salvation. The book of Joshua is a transition book, taking us from Torah, the first five books of the Bible that Moses writes, setting us up for the occupation of the people of God in the land of God. Joshua is a transition, much like the book of Acts is a transition from the earthly ministry of Jesus to the expansion exponentially of the church in the New Testament. Moses has died. The mantle of leadership has been passed over to Joshua. They've been in the eastern part of 
Canaan. They're crossing over the Jordan at flood stage, and they've taken Jericho. They've taken Ai. They were duped by the Gibeonites, but they continue to press in east to west, which is always the direction of judgment in Scripture. They've pushed in east to west. They divided Canaan in half. All the kings of the south came together in a coalition, and Joshua beat them. Actually, Joshua got out of the way. And God rained down the storehouse of the ammo dump of heaven and wiped out the southern kings. And then Joshua returns to Gilgal, their headquarters, moves north, takes all of them out as well. It's been done. And then last week we saw the sort of laundry list of the 31 kings that were actually included in that conquest. 31 kings, 16 in the south, 15 in the north, because God never forgets a name, and he knows every single detail. So Joshua, chapters 1 through 12 are all about the conquest. Chapters 13 to 24, the second half of the book, is all about the distribution and the allotment of the land. So we're going to start the second half of the book this morning. Joshua chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. It starts off a little bit confusing, a little bit surprising. Not that there was this massive mirror ball smoke machine laser fest party because of the conquest was over. No, it starts off like this. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, dude, you are old. That's a bit of a paraphrase. We're told by the narrator, the writer, Joshua, or his scribe, Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. Jeez, thanks God because you don't look a day over eternal, and I bet your knees don't feel like mine, okay? And there remains yet very much land to possess. There is much to do, so much to do. God didn't do the thing, and now it's over. God did it, now go do it. Joshua was old. How do you know when you're old? Well, there's a lot of different ways, obviously. Some of you are married, and you know this, that there comes a stage in life when, huh, you can hear yourself breathing. When did that begin? Or when you walk, you can actually hear the entire skeletal system revolt against the rest of the skeletal system. Or, or you sink your teeth into a nice juicy steak, and they stay there. <laughs> but you know you're old when the ancient of days who exists eternally goes, oh man, you smell like Old Spice. You're old. Joshua's old. He's come to the end of his engagement. He was a common man doing an uncommon job. No actual military training, but to lead the people of Israel, these millions of people in all the different sort of dialects and all the different expressions, leads them across the Jordan River. They fight and they fight and they fight. And by the way, they don't take any casualties except for one encounter at Ai when they did it badly. The rest of it, we're not told of any casualties. He's a common man doing an uncommon job, but that is about to change. The conquest was, we might say, extensive. It covered all of the lands and all of the boundaries that God wanted them to take, but it was not intensive. There were still little pockets that needed to be rooted out, little parts that were either inconsequential or out of the way or ignored or just left incomplete. And so now this common man who had been doing an uncommon job now has to pivot, now has to transition in his old age. He's probably 100 by this point. Joshua 24 tells us that Joshua dies at the age of 110, and so the clock is ticking loudly for him. He's got to go and finish off what's been happening now, this is the halfway point, 
And for 12 chapters, we've gotten exciting things like battles and maneuverings of armies and sabotage and some, some ambushes and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> the next 12 chapters-ish, the next nine to 10 chapters, well, it's a real estate contract. It's literally what it is. And it reads like a land deed. And we've got 100,000 place names because, well, that's what's going on. God's giving them all of the specific, precise data. Why is this in our Bible? Well, I want to remind us, this is God's holy and inspired word, and so why it's here actually matters a lot. This is the story of the Bible. Now, I leaked a little bit of this to our Thursday morning men's group, but I'm also quite aware they weren't listening and have already forgotten, or they'll pretend to be surprised. So we talked about this in our Thursday morning men's group, 6.30 on the second floor. Here's why this passage, what we're about to get into, is in our Bible. It's the story of the Bible. The Bible is the story of the earth and how God's glory is demonstrated upon the earth. That's your Bible. There's a lot of things that are going on before creation. There will be a lot of things that are going on after creation. But the Bible is the story of the earth and how God's glory is demonstrated, made manifest on the earth. First, we see that made manifest and demonstrated in creation. In the beginning, God and he said, Dabar Yahweh, and when he said, let there be, before he even got to the E, 14 and a half billion light years in every direction, there be the glory of God in creation. But then the other aspect of the demonstration of God's glory on the earth is redemptive recreation. When the whole stew gets spoiled and rotten, then the task has to change. There has to be a redemptive recreation. That's why in the book of Revelation, in the throne room of heaven, we're given a glimpse, two different hymns being sung in Revelation. Chapter four, it is a creation hymn where all the angelic realm and the elders gathered give praise for the power, the sovereignty, the might of God who speaks and things are. And then chapter five, equally impressive, perhaps more volume, is the power of God in redemption. To take that which is dead, to take that which is separate and breathe life and into it. It's the story of our Bible. That Bible includes an opening narrative of a world that God's create, and it is perfect. It is sinless. There's nothing wrong with the world. And then we're given some very specific boundaries and borders, the Pisgah River and the other places, the Tigris, the Euphrates. And there is an area, a region in that perfect world that is even perfecter. I know we Westerners don't like that, fra that phrase perfecter, but it's biblical. The world is sinless and perfect. And there's a specific area called the Garden of Eden that's even perfecter. And then God places Adam and Eve in that garden. And what does he tell them to do? pickleball, naked and ashamed, pickleball. No, not what he says. He says, tend the garden. How? It's a perfect place in a perfect place. God says, make it perfecter. Isn't that interesting? That's for all eternity. We imperfect and perfecter and we identify and identify. But we know the story. Sin enters in and the whole thing becomes corrupt and God has to begin his program of redemptive recreation. We must keep these things in mind when we read stories like this in the Old Testament. It's not God just going, well, then they messed up and I had to come bail them out. No, the Old Testament narratives are commentaries about God by God. 
They are commentaries about what God is like, what God does because of who he is and therefore who we end up being. So if we don't know that, then stories like Joshua 13 and 14 that we're going to cover today leave you scratching your head. God cares about the land massively. You've gone in and you've conquered Joshua. That's great. I need you to finish. I need you to possess it. That's my land. Why does God, the God of the cosmos who created the universe, care about that land? Short answer, because he says so. Because that land was where Eden began and where two people walked with God in the cool of the day and they had communion. It was a habitat where God and man could dwell and God said, I will have the habitat. I want that land. In the book of Joshua, the word land appears 85 times. The term inheritance referring to the land, another 60 times. God wants that land, but the land itself, the dirt, the mineral, the oil rights, that's not really the purpose. The purpose is God desperately, please hear this about your God, desperately wants a habitat in which materially, literally, legally, and logistically, God and man dwell together, and he will get it done. Now, that's very good news. Doesn't mean it will be easy. God's done it. Go do it. Joshua was this common man doing this uncommon job, and now he has to transition and start doing this very common job. He was a military general. Now he's got to be a landman. Now he's got to start handing out land deeds and these kinds of things. But just like Moses, he's not going to get to finish the deal. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies, and Joshua is handed the mantle of leadership. We know that Joshua is now about 100 years old. And again, how do you know you're old? When God says, dude, you are old. Joshua's not going to get to finish this project, but he's been a part of it that will be handed down for generation to generation. Is that sad? No, it's grand and it's glorious that we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. It's an old adage, but it goes like this. God buries his workers, but continues his work. It is never about what we can get accomplished. That's because we are never the hero of our story. God is the hero of our story and of the story. And if anything, our biggest problem and obstacle is us that has to be overcome. That, of course, can only occur by Christ for those who are in Christ. That's why the book of Joshua is important for us 3,500 years later. I know, we would rather read war stories and battles and ambushes. Land deeds and geographies are not all that exciting, but it's good theology. God's actually involved and aware of with intimate detail all of the details. It's good for us. We kind of have a tendency to think, well, God started the universe thing off and then he just walked away and left us to handle the, the hard stuff. No, no, he knows every single one of these villages, every one of these creeks, every one of these dry riverbeds, every one of these land locations. He knows all of those details. Why, why? Well, because he's sovereign God and he's omniscient, that's true, but also because he was with his people every step of the way. And it's good for us to remember be reminded, God is with us every single step of the way. Well, believe it or not, we're covering two chapters today. I'm one verse in. Here we go. <laughs> oh, have faith. Verse two. This is the land that remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites from Shehor, which is in the which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, Ekron, and those of Avim. 
in the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Mirah that belong to the Sidonians, to Aphek, at the boundary of the Amorites, and to the land of the uh, Gebelites, and then of Lebanon, toward the sunrise, from Baal Gad, below Mount Hermon in Lebo Hamath. So we've started south, we've moved our way up north, back down south again. All the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon to Mizrapoth, Maim, even all the Sidonians, I myself, this is the point of this little section, God says, I myself will do it. I've done it, now go do it. And I'm still going to do it. I'm not just slapping you on the backside and putting you between the hash marks. Go, no, no, no. I'm still going to do it. Just follow me. Keep that in mind. That's important. I'm going to do it. You just follow me wholly. That's the key here, the second half of verse six. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half tribe of Manasseh. Now, what we're gonna do is we're going to skip ahead a little bit. I'm not gonna read all these place names. Chapter 13, verses eight to 33. We're just gonna put a map up if we can do that. We're gonna put a map up. What you're gonna see is on the east side of the Jordan River to the east side of the Dead Sea, all the way up to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. You've got three tribes down there. In the south, you've got Reuben. In the middle, you've got Gad. and the north, you've got Manasseh. Manasseh is actually one tribe, but it gets broken in half. You've got East Manasseh, West Manasseh. Two different sons of Manasseh. One gets the land on the right side, one gets the land on the other side. Two and a half tribes stay, and this rest of chapter 13, verses 8 to 33, is going to give you every single one of those villages and place names and who was conquered when they drive them out. Now, it begs the question, should those two and a half tribes stayed on the east side of the Jordan River? It's been debated and discussed for thousands of years, and I'm just going to go ahead and answer for you now. No! There's a lot of people that disagree with me, and that's totally fine. One day they'll be dead, and they'll know better. For now, I can tell you that Scripture makes it pretty clear that it was not a great idea. For starters, the way it's described when these tribes come to Moses is very similar to Genesis 13 and 14, where Lot and Abraham are sojourning with their flocks and they get too big and their flocks are sort of starting to intermingle and their shepherds are starting to fight about water wells and Abraham and Lot say, hey, we should probably split up here. And Lot says, I'll take that place over there. It's got nice water. It's got nice land. I like it. Just so happened to be the same spot that we're talking about here east of the Jordan. And the scripture says in Genesis 13 that Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the land was good and he wanted it. Abram, on the other hand, said, lifted up his eyes and he saw that God was with him. And he followed the Lord, his God, wholly. Abraham was blessed. Lot, well, he winds up in Sodom and Gomorrah, always a bad afternoon. Before long, Sodom and Gomorrah taken in, in military campaign. Abram has to go way up north to Damascus and save him. It's the same thing here. They're about to cross over from the east and these two and a half tribes come to Moses and say, hey, we actually like this better. We like this land. We're ranchers, we're farmers. And Moses gets furious. He says, no, what part of Canaan did you not understand? Was it the Canaan or the Anne? God's going across the river. You should come with because God's plan is for all 12 tribes, the son of God to bring back the kingdom context of the land of Canaan. And they go, we're just gonna stay because we, we like that land over there. But we'll make you a deal. Tell you what, let's do. We'll go across with you. We'll help you take the land and then we'll go back across the river and settle. And Moses says, and I quote, fine. And he prays and God says, fine, I will permit it. 
It's not what he wanted necessarily. And so sure enough, those two and a half tribes did help with the conquest. It took them seven years. And then they go back and they settle east of the Jordan. Was it a good idea? History would say, no, it was not. For starters, had there been all 12 tribes trying to live in that close, tight proximity west of the Jordan in Canaan, they would have scraped it clean and made it completely Israel. But they never finished the job because two and a half of the tribes were east of the Jordan River. Secondly, Every time, every time, and 100% of the time, invasion came for Israel. It always came from the northeast, always. First, it was the Syrians, the Arameans. They would come in, and they would always hit Manasseh, and then Gad, and then Reuben. And then the Assyrians would come, and they would hit Manasseh, and Gad, and Reuben. And then the Babylonians would come, and they would hit Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben, because there was no natural defense, no boundaries, no blockages whatsoever. So did God permit it? Yes. Was it best? No. And that's a lesson for us. Sometimes God will permit what we want when we kick and we scream. Doesn't mean it's actually for our best, but God, in the end, will give you what you want. Be wise and prayerful. Seek the wise counsel of others if that's what you should actually do or not. Well, in um, verse 13, real quickly, in verse 13, we see the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites. This is still east of the Jordan. Or the Maacathites of Geshur or Maacath. They dwell in the midst of Israel today. So that's the first little ping of dum-dum-dum. It doesn't say that they could not drive them out. It says that they did not drive them out. Here's where we're starting to see the first fruits of compromise. Eh, they don't really matter. They're not strategic. But that's how partial obedience always is. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. Those two little towns northeast of the Sea of Galilee were not significant. They were not strategic. But they continued to worship their gods in the Canaanite fashion. And sure enough, by the time you get into the book of Judges, those two little spots have begun to corrode and infect and to corrupt worship of Yahweh in those places. They were supposed to have driven them out, but they lost their vigilance. They ran out of steam. Verse 14, to the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance as he has said to him. Way back in Numbers 35, we're told that the tribe of Levi is not going to get their own apportionment of land. They're going to be the ones who work in the temple. Whatever meat is sacrificed, that's going to be used to feed the priests and their families. But they're not left with nothing. They're going to be given 48 cities that will be sprinkled all throughout Israel on both sides of the Jordan. 48 Levitical cities, some of which will be cities of refuge, where the Levites themselves actually live. That way they can minister to the people, instruct them in the law, show them the ways of life. Moses had set that up way back in Numbers 35. And God tells them, your portion, your inheritance is not a hill country. It's not a stream bed. It's me. I am your inheritance, which is exactly what he had said to Abram. In Genesis 15, 1, Abram, I am your reward. I am your strong shield, a very great reward. And that is continued on with the Levites. Who got the better deal? I've had conversations where people say, that's not fair. The Levites had to do all the work and cut all the, the sacrifice. Everyone else got land. No, no, no. All the other tribes got the lands of the Lord, but the Levites got the Lord of the lands. And forever and ever, they would be the ones with the persistent proximity to God as 
Isaac already read, Psalm 84, better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. That's the Levites. It gets referenced again in verse 33. Now, not a whole lot else we're gonna talk about in chapter 13. Just remember that Reuben on the east side of the Jordan wasn't supposed to be there. Reuben was the firstborn. He was supposed to have gotten a double portion, but he messed up large back in the book of Genesis. He tries to usurp his father's power and authority and leadership, and he goes into Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. And so Jacob gives a prophecy, says in Genesis 49, because of this, you will not excel. You are wild as water. And so Reuben only gets one portion. That's why he's down in the south in a very tough area, what is today southern, southern Georgia, where Petra is. But Joseph does get two portions. His sons are Ephraim and Manasseh. And we usually say it that way, Ephraim and Manasseh, even though Manasseh was born first, God in his sovereignty switches the blessing. And God says, Ephraim will be my firstborn, not Manasseh. That's the way God frequently does it. So you've got Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh in the east. And now we come into chapter 14. Now, after all this time, chapter 14, it's time to allot the tribes on the west side of the Jordan in the land of Canaan. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun, that's Nun, not Nun, because his mom was not a nun. Be super clear on that, right? Didn't happen. Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers of the houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one half tribes. So what's going on here? How do we know that when the lands get divided and delegated that it's going to be fair. You have to understand, for 45 years, some of these people have been waiting and wondering and waiting and wondering, 45 years, where am I going to live? Not everybody who had been in Egypt was dead. Deuteronomy 2 says, when all of the fighting men of Israel die, then the 40 years is over, then we come in. There were still some older folks who had perhaps been children or some of the women or whatever, not everybody who was in Egypt was dead by this point, but they had been waiting 45 years to go into the land. Now, the way this would work, when it says driven or uh, drawn by lot, they had two large clay pots, two urns. And in one of the pots, they had the names of the 12 tribes on an individual piece of clay. In the other pot, they had a separate piece of pottery, several of them, that had all the different land portions drawn out town by town, stream by stream, hill by hill. And so Joshua would reach in, grab one of the tribal designations. This one would say Judah. And then he would reach in, fish around. And he knew that Judah always liked to bend the corner on the things. I mean, we don't gotta get that one. And he, he pulled this one out. And God knew what God was doing. So it was not by chance God was sovereignly doing it, but no one could say it wasn't fair. And so God also knew that different tribes had different sizes, different needs of resources, different skill sets. And so when he reaches in and grabs this particular allotment, which is what we see in the rest of chapter 15, it's a perfect match. So Joshua is just about to do this. And apparently the first one is gonna be uh, with Judah. Let me keep reading here. Verse... Two, the inheritance was to be by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the head of Moses for the nine and one half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to two and a half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance, yet we know all that among them. 
For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites. Yeah, we heard that too in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their uh, pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. Now, here we go. Verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. Gilgal is the headquarters right there on the west bank of the Jordan River. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, hold on a second. Caleb, well, we may or may not remember, Caleb was one of the 12 spies way back in Numbers 13 and 14 who went into the land with Joshua. But his father's name is Jephunneh, and he's a Kenizzite. Somehow, he is the representative, the tribal chief of the tribe of Judah, and he's a Gentile. Now, that's fascinating because your Messiah comes from the tribe of Judah, but this guy comes from the Kenizzites. We don't know much about the Kenizzites. Probably, they come from somewhere in Saudi Arabia. And as Israel is coming up out of Egypt, apparently, the Kenizzite clans go, whoa, That looks like an actual God doing actual things with actual people we're in. And so the Kenizzites, this guy named Jephunneh, apparently brought his son and his other son, Kenez. They were probably descendants of the Edomites, interestingly enough, because their name was Kenez, and that's Kenez is one of the descendants of Edom, of Esau. Strange, but he's a Gentile, and he represents Judah, He's grafted in, kind of a surprise. You've got other Gentiles like this, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah the Hittite, that are very close to God's program of reclamation of the land. Very interesting. Then the people of uh, Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. <laughs> Caleb's going to remind Joshua of the good old days. And come on, you know how it is. You know how it is. All the people are standing around, and the old guy starts to tell a story, and all the young people go, okay, boomer, here we go. Roll their eyes like, oh, the old guy's going to wax. Oh, no, Caleb is not to be trifled with. I mentioned this last week. He has old man strength. He says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, and I wholly followed the Lord my God. And there it is, verse 8. There's your, there's your, your portable principle. Three different times Caleb's going to describe himself as wholly following the heart of the Lord his God. That's who he was. That's what he did. That's a great model. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. I don't know. Do you see this guy? Caleb is, he's, well, listen to him. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. Oh yeah. And don't you, you know he had a Scottish accent, don't you? I mean, can you just hear him? Now listen to what he says. I'm still as strong as the day. I mean, you know he's grizzled. You can grade cheese on this guy's face. He is beaten. He's weathered. He's 85. Let me at him. 
let me at him. I'm as still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. Now, I know some 85-year-olds, and I would not play Twister with them. <laughs> that would be all she wrote. But Caleb knows the secret. He knows that it wasn't him that had won any of the battles. Oh, he's changed, but God hasn't. God says, I myself will drive them out before you. Just like I did, Caleb. Caleb goes, nothing's changed for me. Oh, now I got wheels, but nothing's changed. Let me add them. I'm going because I've seen what God does. God's gonna do it, so I'm gonna go do it. I am still as strong today as I was that day when Moses sent me my, my strength is now, my strength was then for war, for going and coming. So now give me this hill country. Now, see, I don't know, you just can't do it without a Scottish accent. Give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. What does Caleb at 85 want? He wants a garden home on the lake with a golf course on the other side. Nope. I want to go in the most dangerous spot where there's still giants walking around. You know why? Because those big guys make a funny sound when they hit the earth. He wants to whack them and stack them. He loves it. Why? Because he knows that God's, he's not that tough, but he knows that God's a bigger God. The spies had seen big people and therefore a little God. Caleb and Joshua saw a great big God and therefore a little bitty people. And it's good for us to be reminded that we want to have Caleb's perspective on the world because we're going to encounter some formidable foes, this, that, or the other. But we've got a great big God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you from Joshua chapter one. Then Joshua blessed him. <laughs> what else is Joshua going to do? I mean, Joshua's going, you're what, 85? I barely even remember 85. Joshua's 100. He blessed him. And this is what he does. It's incredible. Then Joshua blessed him. And he gave, oh, this is interesting. He gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. The Kenizzite were being reminded. Hebron was the ancestral home of Abraham where Abraham bought the cave of Machpelah, where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and Leah were buried. It is now the inheritance, not by lot. Joshua didn't have to dig his hand in the jar for Caleb. No, God promised through Moses. And so he says, I'm giving you Hebron, the center of where this all began, Gentile. Whoops, go get him, tiger. And we know that he did because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, sweet, cute little footnote here. The name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Kiriath means fortress or fort. Arba, we're told here in the text, well, he was just the greatest man among the Atakim, and the land had rest from war. That's all you get from the war. Caleb just goes in and whacks him. Kiriath Arba, the fortress of Arba, the greatest of all the giants. But then the land was like, whew, because Caleb wholly followed the heart of the Lord, his God. So what do we take away from this lengthy chapter of, or two chapters of tribal allotments and what have you? God has done it, go and do it. How does that apply to us? How about some portable principles? Number one goes like this. It's not too late to not regret. It might be a little strange. It's not too late to not regret. I have spent a lot of time in hospital rooms and hospice rooms. Praise God, and I mean that. It's a special, difficult, challenging time, but it's wonderful and it's beautiful. 
And I have never once ever heard someone say that they wished they would have watched more Netflix before they went home to be with the Lord. Not once ever. On the contrary, there's a refrain that usually sounds something like this, a little bit of pang of regret. I regret not spending more time with my family and friends. I regret not introducing more people to Jesus. I regret all the ways I wasted my time. I regret all the ways I wasted my days. But it's not too late to not regret. You know, Caleb was 85 years old. I found another 85-year-old wrote this poem. She was 85 when she wrote this, and it's called, If I Had My Life to Live Over. She writes, I dare to make more mistakes next time. I'd relax. I would limber up. Good idea. I would be sillier than I have been this trip. I would take fewer things seriously. I would take more chances. I would take more trips. I would climb more mountains and swim more rivers. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. Praise God, I'm in. I would perhaps have more actual troubles, but I'd have fewer imaginary troubles. You see, I'm one of those people who live sensibly insane hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I've had my moments, and if I had it to do over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I'd try to have nothing else, just moments, one after another, instead of living so many years ahead of each day. I've been one of those people who never go anywhere without a thermometer a hot water bottle, a raincoat, and a parachute. If I had my life to live over, I would start barefoot earlier in the spring and stay that way later in the fall. If I had to do it again, I would travel lighter next time. I'd go to more dances. I would ride more merry-go-rounds. I would pick more daisies. Now, I'm not advocating that you actually walk around removing someone's daisies. I am, however, inviting you to think about whether or not your vigilance has diminished, just like we saw the people in their possession of the land. Today, think about this, it's a rainy day, you've got some opportunity. Today, you have every day left in your life that God intends for you to have. Just like Joshua, just like Caleb, what are we really doing with it? Today, you have every day left of the rest of your life. Have you thought about that? It's not too late to not regret it. God has done it, go do it. No, I'm not asking you to go and whack and stack Canaanites, no. I'm saying disciple some students. Connect with other believers in a life group. Serve in one of our missions initiatives. Find what you love and let the Lord do it for you. Second point goes like this. Christianity is walking in what God has willed. Christianity is walking in what God has willed. I certainly mean, of course, the will and the desire of God, but... I want to nuance the meaning ever so slightly based on the, tux, on the text that we just studied. Think of what God has willed as all the blessings and all the things and relationships and experiences that he has left you in his will, except that he's not dead. This is what I have in my will for you for the rest of your life. And as a Christian, you learn how to walk in that. No, he is not dead. He is, in fact, with you, and he's done the hard work of making a clear, bright path forward in a world full of chaos and corruption. And when all of our thinking and feeling and relating and experiencing exists with a persistent mindfulness of the presence of God, our everyday walking around lives take on an eternal flicker that warms us with meaning and those around us. Or we might say what we've said many times at this campus, 
Christianity is learning to live like you're truly loved or learning to live like you're truly forgiven because you are. Christianity is not, however, where God will probably get you to heaven when you die, but in the meantime, you've just got to claw and scrape your life out of a rock. Now, that's not very good news at all. That's not the gospel. You are called to walk in the gospel. You don't have to drive out villages of Canaanites. You get to increase the land by knowing this God sincerely and then being connected to people whose greatest need is love and truth and gospel. Every time, every person who receives and believes the gospel, they're like a Canaanite village that Israel redeems. The old ways of false worship are gone and the newness of life springs up. And you get to be a part in your own little sphere of influence of identifying a dark and dying corner of the cosmos. Third point, very quickly. This is actually stolen ruthlessly from my dad. He's with the Lord now. He won't mind. It goes like this. Your windshield is bigger than your rearview mirror. Well, and of course it is. But that's for a reason. It's where we're supposed to be looking almost all the time. If your greatest days with Jesus and for his church are behind you, and all you can ever say is, oh man, I remember that time that summer. I was on fire. I was at Pine Cove. FDR was in office. We were about to go to war. Man, that was a sweet time with Jesus. Oh, you've missed some time to walk with the risen Lord, death-proof King Jesus. I can just about guarantee that God has more proverbial villages of kingdom possession for you to take. I don't know what it is for each of you. I don't know, but Scripture is clear that we have that rest in Christ now, but we haven't fully received that rest in the presence of God in heaven. Hebrews 4 talks about that rest we have now in Christ, but that we will enter into rest later. But some of us have decided, eh, I'm just going to settle down here on the east side. It's good enough. You decided that you need to accelerate that timetable and go ahead and shut down your spiritual vitality now. I'm so grateful. I really am. As I think about our church and this campus, for a church that does have so many people who are like Caleb, though not particularly Scottish, I'm afraid. So many people who are like Caleb who have been waiting their whole life for whatever God has for them today. Just prayerfully imagining what that might possibly be. God has done it. Go and do it. Again, he hasn't called us to kill and crush Canaanites. In fact, effectively, we're the Canaanites. The things that wage war against our soul are the world and the flesh and our enemy. And Jesus has overcome all of them already. He is the last Adam that has beaten the last enemy, death. And in each one of us, he is trying to plant this little pocket of identification, of making that which is perfecter and perfecter and perfecter. That's why Paul will talk about in Corinthians, we with unveiled face are being transformed from glory, which sounds pretty great, to glory forever and ever and ever. The gospel is that God has done this for us in Christ. His victorious life offered to us freely. Again, from Hebrews 4, all the giants in front of us aren't actually the Anakim or the Nephilim or the Rephaim. They are our sin patterns of addiction or greed or anger, or lust, or apathy, whatever it might be. And Jesus had given the victory by becoming all those things and taking them to his cross. God's done it. Now, for some of you, maybe you don't actually believe that God's big enough to take out your addiction. Oh, he's big enough to wipe out 
the Anakim from the hill country of Hebron, but can he actually wipe out and address your addiction, your assault, your anger, your arrogance, your apathy? God's done it. Now go do it. We are from the future, living in the present because of what Christ did in the past. We're not the ones that have to try and stop all the garbage in the Pacific Ocean. We can't even solve the price of eggs. Sorry. We are kingdom ambassadors that invite people into the truth. God has done it. Go do it. Let me invite you to pray with me. Father, again, thank you for the time this morning, for this word. I pray that it does not try to convince or compel anyone to simply try harder, to do more, to be better. That sort of willpower worship is futile. But point us to your son Jesus and his finished work that just like you drove out all the Canaanites, you've also given us victory over the power of our sin and the penalty of our sin. And one day, hopefully soon, you will even remove us from the presence of our sin. Until that time, God, would you give us the joy of living victorious lives, not because of what we've done or what we deserve, but because you're awesome and you're good and you're for us. And so would all the people hearing my voice, in a sense, go forth because what you have done and do what you've called them to do. God, would you bless this community because of their mission-mindedness, their persistent awareness of your presence? Would you do that? Because that would be awesome. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us first. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.